Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Andrew Kronk to record a sort of bonus follow-on episode to our Rise of the Crypto Native Fund uh, podcast. This will go a little bit deeper in, uh, in technical detail on some of the some of the topics we were discussing. But Andrew, do you want to sort of set the stage for why we're why we're having this conversation? Sure. Yeah. One of the things I get asked a lot about is this whole crypto thing. Is this whole decentralization movement different, or are there actually benefits to it? And so I, I like to talk about how we got here, what some of the benefits of decentralization are, because um, it's not more efficient, uh, but there are some things that are useful in it. So maybe we can start with a, a simple explanation via analogy and uh, and see if that's helpful to some folks. So one of the things I like to talk about is, say, Eric, if I wanted to send you money via PayPal, it's pretty well understood how I would do that, right? I know your email address. I send you, say, $100, and um, PayPal makes sure that happens. And so it seems pretty seamless, and it seems sort of magic. But what's actually happening under the hood, um, there's there's a number of things which are important. Number one is that you and I are both trusting that I say send 100, and Eric, you have to receive 100. Um, they're not going to say, actually, we're only going to give Eric 85, and, uh, and, and there's no recourse for that. Or they might say, you know, actually, we're going to block this transaction. And and so what we're really talking about here is there, we're, we're putting all our trust into this one party um, to to dutifully um, transact the money. And so a different approach might be instead of putting our trust into one party, how would it work uh, in a different way? And that's really what decentralization is, is after is instead of trusting one party, how could you trust almost no one but uh, take a consensus? And so the way this might work is instead of saying, OK, just PayPal, you know, do this transaction for me, you would just send money to Eric. And everyone who is on the network, meaning this network is a group of individuals, let's just use a number in our head, say there's 10 people on this network. Um, I would say, hey, everyone, I'm going to send $100 to Eric. And then everyone in the network says, okay, that makes sense. And then there's a consensus or a majority that says, Andy sent money to Eric, let's record that. And um, so really what we're looking for here is not a single party who can say this happened, it didn't happen, but it's really the consensus of a group. If it's, uh, you know, nine out of 10 people say that this happened, then it's likely that, that this event happened. And there's a few things that are useful here. Number one is that, um, we're not, we're no longer trusting a single party, meaning, um, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to say if PayPal says this happened or didn't happen. Um, it's, it's sort of diffuse or, or we're using sort of like wisdom of the crowds. It's a bit like crowdsourcing. It's a, it's a, it's a rough analogy. Um, but number two is what if PayPal's website is down? It's unlikely that those, these other 10 people, on this decentralized network, I'll be down at the same time. So we're removing the single party of trust. We are getting better um, uptime, or it's, it's unlikely that our transaction will will be blocked because um, uh, because the network is down. Is we're, we're having ten people to send it to. And also, um, there's another benefit to this, which is um, that everything that we're doing, we're transacting, is in public. We're we're broadcasting our transactions in public. So. It can't be rolled back later. Sometimes people call this being immutable, or you hear the terms public ledger, but the, the nature of us broadcasting this way um, um, means that uh, the, the things that we do can't be undone later. 
And then there's, there's one other side benefit that people uh, talk about a lot, which is uh, with PayPal, you hear that maybe my account got locked or I can't buy certain kinds of things online. Let's say, for example, um, in the United States, you couldn't own gold bullion until January 1st, 1975. You couldn't buy it. Um, but what if I wanted to buy some from you, right? So a lot of times people will talk about um, a decentralized network being uncensorable. And not all decentralized networks are. Um, but in general, if you're thinking about Bitcoin, this is one of the things people talk about is these, these 10 people who are voting uh, to say that this transaction happened, um, they usually aren't saying what was it for or anything like that. You can just transact freely. Does that make sense? And so just going from a single party that's, that's facilitating a transaction to sort of a consensus from, from uh, a, a larger group. Totally, totally. And so, yeah, uh, yeah thank you for, for that context. Let, let's, uh, let's get into it a little bit. Um, how would you describe the, to like a, to a five year old, uh, and you, you just had a baby, so you can appreciate this, um, how, um, you know, the differences between what, you know, Jake at Coin Fund do, does, what, uh, you at, at Figment do, uh, and what, uh, Mayor is, is focused on, uh, and what are sort of the philosophical underpinnings for, for each of them? Sure. Yeah. So what, what Jake at Coin Fund does and what, uh, we do at Figment, um, are, are much more similar than different. The difference uh, with someone like uh, Maher or Chorus One um, is that uh, he views what he's doing uh, first and foremost, I believe, and I'm going to be putting words in his mouth, so please, Maher, um, call me out if I, if I understood you in uh, the wrong way. But um, he is he's first and foremost a service provider to a network. His job is, I mentioned those 10 people earlier, he wants to be one of those 10 people who vote, and he wants to be a dutiful sort of impartial um, uh, network provider, a service provider, someone you hire, right? A contractor almost. Um, and and that's what his focus is. The the approach that we're taking um, with with Figment is we are first and foremost looking, we're, we think of ourselves as investors. And so investors uh, in, the, in startups usually are looking for one thing. They want to help facilitate growth. And so we want to do things for a network to help it grow. One of those things is, is be a, what we talked about in proof of stake, proof of stake networks, a validator, but more generally, you could call it a miner. Um, but uh, really, we're looking for, uh, at the end of the day, an ROI on our activities. And so is Meher. But um, uh, I think just um, the term that he used might have been a pure play operator, where we are a, a uh, an investor as well. So we're splitting hairs a little bit. But um, at the end of the day, we want the same thing. We want the networks that we participate on to succeed. Um, we don't want them to be insecure we want to provide services so um what you'll see in is this is a nascent space is is how the relationship between a firm like jake's at coin fund and a firm like Meher's at course one in figment how we all sort of coexist um i i think that specifically we're looking at proof of stake networks which are sort of the next generation after proof of work where i think proof of work um was was largely about uh, um Everyone for themselves and try to take as much of the, of the pie as you want. I think the big experiment that we're going to see if it works or not, proof of stake, is can a firm like CoinFund and Figment and Course One all sort of coexist as frenemies? Um, and there's some technical reasons why we can't get too large uh, as a single entity. But uh, so we'll be competing, but we also need each other. It's it's a weird uh, tension. So um, and another way to d- describe it is that. Uh... Jake Quinn Fund had this, this sweet, uh, tweet storm where he's talking about how the line between an investor, you know, provides value through capital, governance, access, uh, and a service provider, you know, course one, 
provides value through capital, governance, utility is becoming more and more blurred and you're exhibit A of that. And then, then he has this tweet. And this is sort of a, a big question, but I want you to unpack it for those who have no idea what it means. He says, we might should become miners, stakers, validators, bonders, curators, dispute resolvers, nodes, hubs, watchers, routers for networks. For VCs out there who don't understand proof of state networks, can you take a few minutes and sort of explain how they work and what, what these terms mean? So proof of stake, like many things in crypto, is evolving and there's multiple definitions. Um, but in general, it's first and foremost a method of securing a network. And so in the example we gave earlier with PayPal, um, if, instead of having PayPal as a single entity, you're having 10 people vote. Um, you might think about why would any one of those 10 people try to, um, to try to say that I didn't correctly send money to you. Maybe they want to take them some for themselves. Maybe they want to, um, to, to censor me for some reason or block me from transacting. So you start, you start thinking about different, uh, game theoretical, um, approaches here. Why would, um, why would someone who's participating on the network be nefarious? And there's a whole bunch of them. And you can go down a huge rabbit hole. But the whole idea here is that with proof of stake, if I want to vote, if I want to be one of the 10 votes that's saying, you know, this transaction occurred, I have to put some of my own money at, at risk. I have to say, look, I'm going to put, I'm going to put $100 on the table. And um, if anyone proves me wrong, saying um, that, hey, Andy didn't send Eric 100 bucks, Andy only sent him 50 bucks. If I say that, but I'm proven incorrect, I lose my stake. So, uh, for, in order for someone like Meher at Chorus One to be a proof of stake validator, um, he will have to put some money at risk, either his own or people that give him money. Um, but it's a way of, of holding people accountable. So that's where the, the proof of stake comes from. The, these validators, these voters are supposed to, um, have some skin in the game. They're supposed to earn some fees, um, from, from validating all these transactions, but also if they, uh, are bad at what they do, or they're outright nefarious, um, they will lose their money. Um, and can you talk a little bit about, um, like, high level, do you expect to earn more from investing in, um, in these networks or from participating in them? Sure. This, this is a question um, that I don't have a great answer on. I can only speak in probabilities. So this is why we structured our, our fund and operations the way we did. Uh, couple ideas. One, as a fund, as a crypto native fund, what asset do you want to hold? Do you want equity? Do you want a token? Do you want uh, fees in the network? There's um, people talk a lot about where does value, uh, where is value captured, where is value accrued, all the, all the different uh, places um, where value might go. But as an investor, you're always looking for a return. And so if I'm being 100% honest, it's unclear how this is going to play out. And so the way we think Back to um, Jake's tweet about are you a, are you a node? Are you doing all these different activities? Um, when I think most abstractly about it, when I think from first principles, it's always um, in startups. Let's go back to sort of normal uh, um, uh, startups. You are giving them capital because that's the scarce resource, right? They need capital to grow. It's sort of uh, most of them need capital to grow. Of course, you can talk about the merits of bootstrapping, but in general, you you buy equity and you're aligned with 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 the startup to grow. With networks, they might not need capital. And um, the example I, I think I talked about before was with Bitcoin. There was no ICO. There was no initial investment. Um, the way you helped Bitcoin grow was to be a miner or to contribute software. And the way you um, the way you uh, participated in the upside of that was that 
um, if you were mining early or were able to uh, get Bitcoin early, you would get a lot and then it appreciated. And so there's no way to really buy it early on. There weren't exchanges. And so that's really, I think, uh, what is new about this space is there may be some uh, projects, protocols, networks that are uninvestable, meaning you can't just go and buy some. There's no what sometimes people call a pre-mine, meaning the people who are making it don't uh, pre-mint a bunch of tokens and sell them. The tokens are only discoverable. The tokens are only mineable. You can't buy them. And so the the balance as an investor is I can wait and see if if a network becomes popular. Let's say like a network starts with zero tokens, and the only way to acquire them is to participate in the network. So uh, you mean you have to be actively mining all those things that Jake described. Um, the tokens are only emergent. You can't go and just say, I want to pre-buy a bunch. They don't exist. So you can do these operational activities in the, in the early stages to earn them, uh, or you can wait until someone else does them and buy them from them. And so you can see here that if you you, you earn them, you're more likely to get them at a, a discount or a lower price. Um, yeah, as opposed to if you wait and have someone else earn them and try to buy them from them, the premium is going to be higher. So it just depends on, on when you have conviction about a network, at what point do you want to invest? What, what entry price do you want? Um, and so what I see here is there's a little bit of a parallel with um, when seed funds emerged, sort of like when Floodgate came out and, and, and Mike Maple said, you know, 500K is a new 5 million. And the larger fund said, great, you go do that. I don't want to take that risk. And then pre-seed funds came out, right? And they said, actually, we're going to go earlier than you. We're just going to get people with an idea and because they're, they're looking for, for alpha and returns. And so I see this as, an, as a similar thing. There could be some investors who just wait and wait until see a network is, is stable and live and running and liquid and they would just buy, do, do a market buy. Or um, there's folks who are going to be getting in earlier than that. So that's the, the analogy I see. And what are the different ways that crypto funds can, can participate in, in networks? So, for example, you know, the, you're, you know, they see something like Cosmos or LivePeer or Zencash or you know, any other, other proof state network. What are the different ways in which they can be involved? And how do yeah. trade off of those ways? Right, right. So this is where I think where there's way more creativity that can be applied. On the earlier podcast, we had talked about um, what we called mining 2.0 or being a validator or being a miner. Um, that's pretty clear because the the activity is provide some service to the network, providing security. You're providing all sorts of things and you, you earn fees in, in exchange. That's pretty clear. And the thing that's going to be unique is that networks kind of try lots of different approaches. Famously, uh, EOS, you know, they did their year-long crowd sale and raised reportedly $4 billion. And then there was 21 block producers um, who they've sort of vied for the crowd's vote to secure that network. And um, producers, and they have to be voted in. And they could be voted in based on whatever the token holder's uh, value. It could be brand. It could be um, proof that they're secure. And so that's that's sort of like the next evolution of mining. When we say validators, when we say proof of stake, uh, those are all sort of in the same bucket. Where I think we're going to see more creativity is if we think abstract about what networks need to grow. And so um, I've seen, I'll, I'll just kind of run through a couple of things I've seen actual investors doing, which do not, to me, look like anything that an investor would think about as a as a, uh, a revenue generating opportunity. Number one, um, some I've seen some investors doing uh, work in exchange for tokens, meaning they will do something like, hey, we will uh, uh, run your Slack community, or we will document your source code, or we'll provide uh, coders. And so in this case, it, it seems strange because that just seems like what you hire a contractor to do. 
But if you believe in the network and you believe that the token will have value, you can either do that for uh, tokens or they could even have the, the promise to, to deliver tokens in the future, sort of like an IOU. So I think that what we'll see is um, there's there's got to be a discrepancy between when you can buy tokens when you can earn them by being a participant in the network and when you can earn them almost as a, uh, as a contractor. And it sounds strange that an investor might do that. But um, for example, if you look at a network like, like Cosmos, they did their, their token sale or their, they call it their fundraiser in April, 2017. And none of those tokens have been delivered yet. Their token is called the Atom and you can't buy them. You can't send them. No one holds them. And so what you're seeing is an emerging market of, of folks who are, um, if you, I think an ETHFINEX are doing, they're planning to do Atom IOUs and trade futures and things like that. And so what you're seeing is this whole emerging market of, we know that the token price was around, I think it was 10 cents USD per Atom. Um, and it's been almost a year and a half now. And the people are getting more excited about the network. And so it's all about, the, if you have conviction and you think it's going to be useful, then it's kind of back to VC investing 101. How do you... Uh, acquire an asset at the, at the lowest price. Uh, and um, there's just really creative ways to do it right now. And I think that this this whole, why all this is available, there's two reasons. One is that there's uh, not a lot of high quality projects. And so that's why you see sort of the trading fees or trading tokens for service model. Maybe you're documenting their source code or writing code or running communities for them. Um, I think that's a part of it. And the other part of it is that the new activity is that the the networks need validators and miners to grow. And that's really the, the limiting factor. Yeah. What about the, um, like, so EOS, uh, is block producer. Like, you know, I have uh, this friend who's coming to be, who's uh, about to be a block producer. Um, would you, is that something you would ever consider as, as part of your model? Yeah. So, so this, this is something, something I, I, I tried, tried to, to dig in a little bit, um, in on the podcast. And I don't think we got to, to uh, a really compelling argument, but you could think of this is okay. I'm running a validator on Cosmos. I'm running uh, infrastructure on you know network X, Y, and Z. Is that really a portfolio for me? Should I think about having a diverse portfolio? And if so, um, should I think about near-term cash? Should I think about value? Should I think about sort of my my flyers or all these things? Crazy venture investments, um, but even so. If you have a if you have a seed portfolio of venture investments, you still want to have to think about portfolio construction, and so um, I think it's kind of the, it's, there's not going to be any single answer because look at all the the variety of, of venture portfolios you see you see highly concentrated you see spray and pray you see late stage you see early stage so I don't think it's going to be any one good answer. I can tell you what we're looking at is we're looking at um, longer term than shorter term. So we want to have long term conviction that this is going to be an important network to be involved with. And we wanted to get in early and uh, go on a long ride. And so for us, EOS doesn't fit that bill. EOS, um, in our mind, and this is not a knock on the project at all, it's essentially like fully priced. And um, as a, a small operation like we are, um, that just doesn't fit our model. That said, um, it is now that it's operating, it looks like a cash flowing business if you are a block producer, right? Uh, the early numbers, now these might have changed, look like you could earn between five to $10,000 a day. And that's that's interesting, right? You could you could have a nice little business around that, but I think what it comes down to is you're going to have to have conviction in two elements if you want this to look like a venture style investment. One, that 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 token that you're earning, that five to ten thousand dollars, that's an EOS, it's not US dollars you're earning. Um, that that will become worth more by you holding it, or the the um, 
volume of transactions on the network will go up such that um, you can earn more fees. And so for us, um, that amount, you know, or let's say it is ten thousand, let's say you earn ten thousand dollars a day. We don't have conviction that um, the, the the price of the token is is going to appreciate in a way that that could have venture style returns for us. And is the term block producer totally unique to US? Yeah. So that's, that's the other thing that's kind of makes this space confusing for people to look at is that it's emergent and there's no standards. Block producer and EOS, validator and Cosmos, um, that some more specific networks, like we spent a lot of time talking about live peer. Um, they call those transcoders, uh, because what they're doing is transcoding video. So, um, I think they're all, they'll all be some sort of, uh, verb, <laughs> meaning someone that's doing something and they're all kind of look alike. Um, but there's got to be probably different uh, terms for everything. And kind of referencing back to Jake's tweet, all those things he said, the most abstract term you could probably come up with is a node, um, but they're all going to be called different things. But they could probably be all um, uh, forecasted or modeled in the same way. And, and I don't know if you want to share some, uh, we, we published some models about how the, we think these networks will play out, and especially from the terms of an operator, how much money you can make. Um, and I can share those links with you. Yeah, but, yeah, um, sure th- those, those are all, those can all be abstract. Yeah, but can you, um, you know, because there are a bunch of terms in there, stakers, bonders, curators, dispute resolvers, hubs, watches, routers. Uh, can you define some of them or are they all sort of uh, just different ways of describing similar behaviors? Yeah, this is where it's just kind of, without um, diving into the specifics of each network, it's going to be hard to make meaningful uh, differences. I think that maybe we can just kind of look at what's in common across them and maybe that'll be interesting. The thing that, the thing that's in common across them is that they're usually providing some sort of, um, security for the network. And so security is also a pretty abstract word, but they have to, they're the ones who say, um, that a transaction occurred and that, you know, they're trying to avoid that what's classically called the double spend problem. If you're, um, you know, trying to move money into multiple places at once and, uh, you know, say, I send $100 to you and I send $100 to, to Sally at the same time, right? Can't create $100. a loose definition of the double spend problem. So, um, in, say like in Lightning Network, there's a hub, um, which, which probably is maybe the most different one. And maybe that's worth understanding on its own just because it's what's called a layer two uh, scaling solution over an existing network like Bitcoin. Um, but I think it's going to be hard for me to kind of pick apart all those. Probably better as a blog post than, than a podcast, I would say, just because there's going to be a lot of nuance across the networks. Why those projects in particular? And can you share either, uh, if not the name of a project you got close to investing, but didn't maybe the characteristics of, you know, what separates you, you getting involved in these networks versus others? Right. Yeah. So there's, um, I think when we started looking at this, we, we, like many people got overly focused on the liquid nature of the assets. Meaning if you're a startup investor, um, you're holding something which doesn't really have a market, right? You invest in the C and the Series A, and maybe if the company is successful at the Series C or D, someone else will come in and say, hey, we're going to price the, the price per share at this, and you can decide to sell or not. Um, usually, most seed investors dream of the day when their company goes public and they all have to manage uh, a liquid asset. And so when we started looking at the space, a lot of people get enamored with the fact that, hey, you can have venture-style returns with public market liquidity. And I actually think that for that may have been uh, a, a thing in 2016, 2017 in the wild west of ICOs. But I think that those um, are, are people are finding out the idea of being uh, a freely tradable public liquidity um, 
publicly liquid uh, thing is actually a negative signal in most cases. Um, the the reason is is because it's hard to manage, and you spend less of your time building and more of your time on uh, you know defending why your your um, token is being manipulated. And so I just say that as a preamble to say we set that aside, and what's left really looks like a lot of classic uh, um, uh, venture style um, diligence, meaning uh, is this the right team? Are they incented to be committed for a very long time? Um, do they have disincentives from behaving poorly? And so I'm, I'm not answering in a, in a uniquely or, or crisp way, but I think a lot of the ways you evaluate the, the team and technology sort of carry over. Where the differences come into play is that, um, let's say you're evaluating a SaaS business. You're trying to think, okay, if this is a B2B SaaS, does a problem exist? Can I go talk to some customers? Um, and really what you're, you're trying to figure out is, can I deliver this at, you know, 70, 80% margins? And is there a big enough addressable market, right? That's the sort of, I'm, I'm simplifying, but that's how you think about it. With, with crypto and with these network businesses, there's multiple parties. It's not just a buyer and a seller. And it's even more complicated than a marketplace business where there's, uh, like Airbnb, where there is a host and a traveler and they're in the middleman in between. There's, there's, uh, sort of a, a whole decentralized network and you have to, really design in uh, a lot of economics. So that's really where I think we started spending a lot of our time is um, people talk about token economics um, is, is a network as simple as possible. And it sounds strange to say, but like the more uh, complex, the more exotic, a lot of the structures are, we actually think that those are more likely to be manipulated. And so what's the, there's a, some famous quote, everything should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. When we are evaluating projects, we spend a lot of time first and foremost on team, and um, and are they incentive for the long term? But then also, is a network design for the long term? Is this simple enough that anyone can understand it and not um, and not totally uh, uh, screwed up in some dimension? And I, I think Jake mentioned on the podcast, and he spends a lot of time on this too. And um, you'll find one little weird corner of some rule in the protocol that uh, that screws everything up. So that's where we spend a lot of our time. How have you thought about building the infrastructure for Figment? New capital figment networks to be able to provide that power. But the other thing we look at evaluating networks is, is this, we imagine like a two by two grid, sort of classic two by two matrix, right? We look at on the one dimension, on the X dimension, we look at, is this something that is uh, improving a developer experience or user experience? And then on the Y uh, dimension, we look at, is this something that is empowering a brand new economy or is this old economy? So you have these four buckets. You have, you know, developer experience, user experience, new economy, old economy. And we like to put things in these buckets. And if it's something that is anything related to the old economy, let's say like um, a lot of times we look at security tokens and the idea of uh, tokenizing a real estate asset, right? So to me, I put that as something that um, is definitely old economy. We're trying to improve something old economy. So you have to think a lot about competitive advantages. And I think a lot of people get swept up in this idea that um, just because it's it's is a token that it's better, I actually think that most time it's not, and so it sounds also kind of boring or or trivial to say. We think a lot about competitive advantages with these sort of I don't say uh, in a negative sense, but just anything that's trying to improve an existing system, there has to be a competitive advantage, and having a token is not anywhere close enough. So I just wanted to add that that idea of that sort of uh, we call it UX versus DX in new world, old world, and where does this this solution fall in there? First and foremost, we, we are, we've organized our business to be based out of Canada. So one of our partners is in Toronto. And so that's, that season makes sense. But I think, um, that was a, a strategic choice to be based in Canada for a couple of reasons. 
uh, one, the the laws are more clear there. There's precedent for, for companies to operate there. Um, what we're doing, it's way less clear in the United States. So I kind of get the benefits of, 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 uh, of friendlier legislation, but also, um, with, with, with stable government with resources. And so, uh, we think pretty long term about where this business is going to be located. And so that's first is jurisdiction. And so that's why we chose there. Um, I think that that decision is not, uh, uh, that crazy of a decision. If you look at most of the, the mining companies have relocated to Canada, uh, there's companies that are on, they're public on the junior exchanges there. There's companies like Neptune Dash, um, which are, they'd be a good, good study if you haven't seen it. The, their ticker is Dash. They're on the TSX, uh, Toronto Junior Exchange. Um, they're a company that is public. Uh, they're a small cap, but uh, you can go buy it. And their job is to operate something called a master node for Dash. So they acquire this, this uh, cryptocurrency called Dash. And then they run services and that's a public company. And one of the things I find fascinating about this space is you can look at their assets, you can, they, effectively the NAV, and you can look at their share price relative to NAV. And um, for multiple companies, there's one called Ether Capital, but in general, these trade at 2x to NAV. And um, I don't know exactly, there's lots of ways you can interpret that. Um, but um, that, that, and that's interesting to me. And a total aside from why we incorporate in Canada, but um, it's it's the laws are more friendly there and, and if and if you want to get public market liquidity um that's there's already precedent for that too uh, that's way far down the road it's not something that we're looking at right now so that, that's first and foremost is we're there second is is where do you go from there um how as as a a proof of stake validator as someone who's going to be partic- participating in networks where should your infrastructure be located um and we took we took a similar approach there and it's sort of um tricky because there is a tendency for these networks to um, for to coalesce in one place, which is bad. Meaning, if all of your infrastructure is on AWS and US East one region, then and that region goes offline, you're not actually decentralized. So we think a lot about how can we add um, decentralization to these networks, and so we've had to go and strike deals with um, co-location hosting providers in different countries, uh, public clouds in different countries, and so. Our infrastructure is is more complex than really um, anything I've had to do before because we're not just signing up for you know AWS and Google Cloud. We're having to go and find uh, co-location providers uh, who have a high degree of security in different places. So um, that's the second element to it is that uh, it's it's uh, requiring us to to be decentralized physically, and um, that means our team is also uh, decentralized. And so we so far do not have any office. And we have employees in all over the place and we've actually designed the company to be diffuse and decentralized so we can have good global coverage as a validator or operator you it's a 24 by 7 job it's not like the the public stock markets where you, the market's closed and you go home uh, this is 24 by 7 and so um it's actually advantageous for us for our team to be uh, as spread out as possible uh, so we can ha- have good coverage in that way so um, I can speak just very briefly to the team, but the team is is highly technical. We really don't have a um, a sales and marketing function yet, and so far our go to market, our sales and marketing has been software. So we released some software called Hubble, which is a way to to do analytics on these networks to view who are the good validators, who are the good operators, because we think one of the big experiments with proof of stake is is going to be this idea that uh, Eric, if you think that I'm good. And what I'm doing, you could stake with me. You could 
delegate some tokens to me. You still retain them, but you're essentially voting to me. And uh, as I operate on the network, uh, you can get a return. And so that that's generally called delegated proof of stake. Um, but uh, crap, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> you were talking about uh, delegated proof of stake, validators. I don't remember. Let's go. Oh, oh right. I remember. I remember. I remember. So, so that that's why we we created this software called Hubble uh, as a way for, for someone like you, Eric. If you're looking to stake with someone, maybe us, maybe Jake, maybe Maher, you can actually view everyone's operations. You can. We're trying to bring some some transparency to to what these validators and different operators are doing. So that is our go to market. Is we're saying, hey, we're Figment. We're creating the software to help these networks, and so that's that's really how we're we're, we're making ourselves known. And so it's less about um, SEO and ads and, and and sort of growth hacking. It's really about um, pr- providing these tools, which we think are, will help the networks grow. And so that's that's really how we structured it. So our 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 marketing team equivalent is our web developers. And the people that run the infrastructure are network infrastructure folks. And so, so far, it's a highly technical team. There's not really a sales function as much. One of the things I think will be an emergent property of these networks is um, is how sophisticated will companies like Figment or CoinFund or Chorus One have to be about their treasury management. And so treasury management has become a bit of a meme in the in the crypto space because all the ICOs that held their their fundraisers in ETH um, are sort of feeling the pain and capitulating and, and selling off their ETH. And so, um, uh, we're going to be no different. We're going to be earning fees, uh, in, in these native tokens. And so, um, do we sell it right away? Do we hold it? Uh, what do we do for that? And so I think you're going to see a whole second wave of, of companies who are just going to do treasury management for, for operator investors. We call ourselves an operational investor. And so I would expect that to be a, a market that pops up. And how do you think about, when you get involved with, with the product, and I guess just valuing products differently, one another part of Jake's Speed Storm was capturing a transaction value versus network utilization value versus governance value of an app protocol in general requires three different economics. Can you talk a little bit about that? The the one thing I think that is a risk to a business like uh, Figment or CoinFund or Course One is how active you have to be with the governance. And so we can kind of go back to the idea uh, with EOS in the early days, you would have to, as a as a block producer, you'd have to get on a conference call and be expected to to sort of be on call to talk with all the other twenty one folks, and that was your coordination. And so, um, that's a huge difference from something like Bitcoin, where the miners are all unknown. Anyone can can spin one up. They they don't talk to each other. They're sort of adversarial, uh, but it still works. And so, to me, uh, governance is something that I think is going to be a huge experiment in the space. Meaning. Um, it's actually a negative signal for us if we have to be on daily conference calls because that's a, a huge investment of time and a huge investment of capital and, and all sorts of changes. And so you asked earlier about how do we evaluate these networks? And, and that's another one of the, the dimensions we look at is how much um, uh, sort of human uh, contact and phone calls and understanding are going to go into this. And so um, that's maybe the way he was alluding to it with the governance part is uh, as an investor, you know, the governance says I go to my quarterly board meeting. Uh, as an EOS block producer, the governance is I get on my daily conference call. Wow, that, that's that's a pretty big uh, uh, ask on time. And I, I know it's 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 calm, calm down and change it, but that's kind of what it took in the beginning. And so um, I think that that will be uh, an emerging property is is how much uh, the governance sort of weighs on you or is is has to be done um, via conversations. And how, how do you think about value valuations or, or like 
you know, valuing these things broadly in terms of like your, your stake and, and what, what that means in terms of ownership and like across both investing and, and participation. So this is one where I, I, I'm reticent to throw out my new crazy, um, valuation, um, uh, framework just because there's been so many of them and, and I'm not from an economics background and I, uh, I don't know if MV equals PQ is right or all these other ones. So I, I don't have a, a magic, uh, crystal ball. What we do in, in, in the spreadsheet I'll share, you can see how we, we did it, but we basically, we value things based off of, uh, adoption. And so we, we say, okay, if this many people use it, then, and how much value is it creating? How's it creating value for them? And then we just do a very loose, um, okay, could, could this be, uh, back out sort of essentially a, a 10x, uh, increase from, from where we're going to be acquiring? So I don't know if that's why I meant by valuation in terms of how do we know if this is a good time for us to enter and, and we have a good margin of safety for us to, to return our investment. But, um, for us, it's way more art than science. We are not, um, we're not applying, uh, any sort of, um, uh, technical analysis of this. It's all fundamental analysis, all thinking about um, uh, basically the amount of value created for how many people and, and, and that's it. So it's it's pretty high level, but I think at, at the, the, stage, the stage we invest, which is sort of seed or pre-seed, anything else is false precision. Um, but uh, that's how we think about it. Yeah, so, so the framework is, is there a 10x potential? Your, your, your current framework would be to summarize yeah, absolutely. And so that's why something like EOS Russ is is not something that we're invested in. We think at the if you want to enter today, um, we don't see how this is something that that goes 10x. We think it's fully priced, and um, so we get, it's clear that EOS is a uh, cash flow generating thing. It, let's say that the the amount is ten thousand dollars a day. You can earn ten thousand dollars a day with EOS right now. Um, that's not the and so. It, the, the whole idea of, of running a validator or block producer is you get to um, buy that at a discount, right? Let's say it costs me two thousand dollars a day to run the operation, so I'm profiting eight thousand dollars a day. That sounds great. Uh, that'd be a really nice small business, but uh, as a as a venture investor, like that's I don't know if I, I want that in my portfolio. But on the other hand, um, to my point earlier about portfolio construction, maybe you want that that cash flower. Maybe you just want that one that's uh, just spitting out cash. Maybe you don't need conviction if you know. That um, is sort of throwing out cash, and so it really depends on your strategy and it depends on your approach. Yeah, and for um, you know, we talked about the podcast how you know uh, if you want to get into mining, it's a spectrum. You know, there's a hardware game on the left, you know, software game on the right. You know, both defensible and in different ways. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the trade offs as you understand them? And for you know, crypto funds who are who are trying to get into the the mining game, how how they should think about you know how to approach it. Sure. Yeah, so I can just kind of describe what the interactions we've had, and then maybe how I, I I see how they might play out in the future. So the the interactions we've had with folks are to say a couple things. One, um, we have we've not been able to get into rounds because um, our perceived value add has gone down. So I talked about this earlier, um, but we are the reason why we're doing it, why we structure ourselves as an operational investor. Is, is really three reasons. One, we think this will offer us superior technical due diligence. We think it will, it will allow us to get into deals we otherwise would have not got into. So deal flow. And we think it, so it's a way to actually to earn an ROI. And so um, let's say that you are um, uh, a more classical investor. You've been doing startups, uh, startup C-stage investing for 10 years. Um, how should you approach this space? Um, 
I think you probably have the same desires that we have, right? Which is I want to understand the stuff. I don't want to get scammed. Um, I want to get into the deals I want to get into and it'd be nice to earn an ROI. So if you don't have these skills, how do you, how do you get them? And so the, the one thing we've had people approach us and say is, okay, can I either one be an LP in your fund or two, can I invest directly into your operational company, Figment Networks? And I think they want a couple of things out of this, but if I'm being honest, I think most of they want out of it is, um, just to see what we see, right? It's, 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 uh, it's, they want to, they want to see which networks are on. They want to see our returns. They want to understand our, um, decision process and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, in this first iteration of our, of our business, um, most folks are just coming to us and saying, Hey, I want to be, uh, partner with you. I want to be aligned with you. And I want effectively information rights. And I hope, you know, if, if this is an ROI, then this, this is a good deployment for me for an ROI perspective too, but I want information rights because I think that to get the deal flow, proprietary deal flow, you have to be able to provide value to the network. And I think that, uh, introductions and connections are going to be devalued. And I think that network growth is going to be an increase in value. So, um, in terms of what you have to be good at, it's, it's, I think it's actually pretty well aligned with, with um, have you run a, a uh, tech startup before the skills are, are very similar you have to recruit a team you have to manage the team you have to have a budget all that kind of stuff and so it's very operational so that's why we call ourselves operational investors what other firms are, are playing in this in this way well this is another part that's fascinating is um some folks are not uh, being public about it um some folks are uh, are doing this in in sort of a, a shadowy way, which is great and fine. Um, but the folks that that we've seen and take a lot of uh, inspiration from, um, definitely uh, Jake at CoinFund. He's he's he to me is someone who's led the way in terms of being open source. You know, he he's run that Slack group for a long time, and it's been a magnet for a lot of people to get into the space. And um, he shared his thoughts very publicly about, hey, um, I think it's less about how can we get into these these ICOs. And how do we get into like stacking SAFs on top to how do we really participate early in networks? And so he sees what we see, which is um, if you want to get in early and if you want to uh, have conviction early, this is a good way to do it. So I think CoinFund is a good example. Um, I don't know if you saw, but uh, the firm called Notation Capital in, in New York, they just hung up their signal shingle and said that they're going to be doing uh, more mining 2.0 operations. I think they partnered with a, a, a company they in software or something like that but that is a good example of uh, of uh, you know they, they sort of popularized the term pre-seed and now they're jumping on and, and saying they're doing mining 2.0 as well and that's great I, I think that you'll see the more technical firms um, make this shift more easily uh, because they're those are those are former founders who are used to, to running teams and so those are two that, that come to mind right away I'm sure there's a, a ton more um, but those are the first two um, that I thought of how, how do you think about the custodian's dilemma that you need custodians to get mainstream money but locking assets prevents you know utilization or you know for voting staking or validating i i think that the the way these the proof of stake networks are working is people talk about a reward for delegating or a reward for for picking one of these validators i actually think it's the opposite you have a penalty if you don't so the token is going to be inflated and if you don't put it to work if you don't Pickman's validator to secure the network, you'll be penalized with inflation. And so um, that that really puts a lot of pressure on the, the vaults, the custodians of the world to uh, to not to not uh, have, have their customers be penalized. And so I think Meher did a good job of outlining the fact that custodians are going to 
I'm going to have to actually get more active. And so I've heard the terms thrown around hot wallet, cold wallet, warm wallet. And a warm wallet would be something that is, uh, you know, they're managing the, the security for you and the keys, but you can actually actively uh, have direct them how to delegate it. So I, th- it's, it's tough to say um, if a custodian will be a, a well-defined thing or if um, it's going to be like Coinbase where you have a wallet and you can click a button and it goes in the vault and uh, you click a button and it comes out. I, I don't know if a pure play custodian um, will really be something that's, that's long for this world for these proof of stake assets. Now for something like, like Bitcoin or something that's a pure store of value, um, I think that's fine. You don't, you don't really have to do anything with it. You might want to lock it away and, and, and never see it for, for five years and then that's fine. Yeah, totally. Is there any other advice you have for, um, for crypto funds, uh, you know, like notation maybe a few months ago or, or, or before they got into it who are, who are curious about the sort of new model, like, any other advice you'd give them? <laughs> so I think about this question a lot, which is how does um, how does someone new enter the space? And I've never heard a good answer, to be honest with you. Um, it's like, yeah, just go on crypto Twitter. That's not a thing. You know, like, yes, every, everyone is there, but no one's like, there's no organization to it, right? And so I, I think this is actually a problem for our space, is that um, the, the best answer and the most honest answer is, immerse yourself, but there's not a place you can go. And so um, I think actually a number of, of the books that have been written are, are particularly good, uh, but they're also a little bit too technical focused. So the, like um, Andreas Antonopoulos' book, Master um, in Bitcoin is good, but like that is down in the weeds. And then there's that guy, William Muyagar, who has, I think, called Business Blockchain. And that's, I don't know, that that's okay. But to me, it didn't really hit the mark. And so I actually think this is an opportunity and maybe this is what you see with, um, with your your uh, token daily is is a chance to do this, but there's no good way to get started. Um, you can't go to these places like, oh yeah, just join Telegram. Like that's that's one of the worst places for information in the world. Like it's, it's misinformation and just flying around. And so it's um, right now it's it's really the equivalent of I don't know if you ever heard the phrase RTFM, read the FN manual. But um, that's kind of where we are. Is is if you want to understand this stuff, you have to uh, immerse yourself and get down deep in the weeds. And I don't think that's that's good for the space. I think it's bad for the space. But it creates an opportunity for for funds like ours and Jake's and, and Notation and, and folks like that. And so um, our hope is to sort of make this more widespread because it can't remain that way, right? Can't keep being that way. If we want to be successful, if we want these networks we're participating on to to increase in value, they have to be more approachable. And so the the meme I've seen is the shift has to be explaining how it works to how to use it. And so. I'm hoping we see more how to use it and less how it works. Totally. And yeah, uh, leaves me a perfect plug. Uh, Token Daily, our, our site curates, I think, like top 500 or, you know, 500 people in, in, on crypto Twitter, we think have really insightful things to say and uh, is, a, is a feed where you can get acquainted. Yep, it's great. Thanks so much, Andrew. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.